This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So this is a slide of some representative fossils from about 2.8 million to 1.4 million years ago that have been attributed to the genus Homo. And by now, you should have a pretty good idea that we're looking at a morphologically very diverse group of fossils. And there's a lot of discussion about what we make of that diversity. Uh, How many species are represented? Which specimens go in which species? How do we sort this all out? And by the time that we get to, um, you know, specimens that we're quite sure are Homo homo erectus, uh, it's not really clear how we can trace the ancestry, you know, which of these various groups gave rise to Homo erectus. Recently discovered fossils from South Africa uh, have really only kind of um, muddied the waters even more. In 2010, we announced Australopithecus sediba from roughly 2 million-year-old deposits at a site called Malapa. And last September, we announced Homo naledi from Rising Star. Unfortunately, uh, the site is currently undated. We're working very, very hard to try to get a date on the material, but we do not yet know uh, where it falls chronologically, and that makes it really, really difficult to understand its evolutionary relationship to other groups. But what's interesting about these two groups is that we now have got four morphological groups. Um, Most of us would call them species, Homo habilis, Homo rudolfensis, Australopithecus sediba, and now Homo naledi, which all share um, features with later Homo and with Homo erectus. They're all primitive in their own ways. They all share derived features with Homo erectus, but they all have a different mix and match of features. And that's kind of interesting. It, again, it makes it difficult to understand where Homo erectus came from, and that makes it difficult in turn to figure out the evolutionary processes, the adaptive shifts, etc., which gave rise to the genus Homo. When we announced Australopithecus sediba, we were really impressed by the number of features that it seemed to share with uh, later Homo and with, with Homo erectus. Um, this is a list of some of the more important features. A lot of these features are adaptively important features. And to us, our preferred interpretation of this was that it, it meant that Sediba had an evolutionary relationship with later Homo. Uh, we thought that Sediba was perhaps the Australopith that had given rise to the genus Homo or a close sister taxon to, to that group. A common refrain from our colleagues in talking about this was that Sediba was in the wrong place at the wrong time to have anything to do with the ancestry of the genus Homo. Um, meaning, at two million years, it's already, you know, almost a million years later than we're already starting to pick up fossils of, of Homo in East Africa. And secondly, there's sort of a general idea that the origins of the genus Homo occurred in East Africa and here we've got a fossil species down in southern Africa. So if, in fact, Sediba does not have anything to do with the origins, origins of the genus Homo, then we can write off these lists of shared features as homoplasy, as convergent evolution. Um, and as has already been men- mentioned, we know from the fossil record that uh, homoplasy is probably a very, very common occurrence in, in evolutionary biology. So it's, it's probably not unreasonable to think Maybe, in fact, Sediba has nothing to do with the origins of Homo, and these are just um, parallel traits that have evolved because they were adapting to similar environments and and facing similar challenges and experiencing similar selection pressure. There might be another good reason to discount these species from southern Africa 
from, from the, the bigger picture of the origins of the genus Homo. And that reason is that southern Africa is a center of mammalian endemism. It is a place where unique species, which are only found in southern Africa, tend to crop up. Uh, if you look, for instance, uh, at historically known fauna, like the quaha, unfortunately now extinct, but known uh, in historic times, um, you find this only in South Africa, whereas the plain zebra, virtual zebra, um, extends up and down the eastern um, coast of Africa and over large parts of the continent. Um, over much of Africa, you've got the blue wildebeest. Uh, in South Africa, you've got the black wildebeest. Up in most of Africa, you've got Grant's and Thompson's gazelles. In the same ecological niche in South Africa, you've got the springbok. And the springbok isn't even closely related to uh, Grant's and Thompson's gazelles. So this is a beautiful case of convergence, the kind of thing that we're talking about here. And in fact, there are 90, 90 mammalian species which are known only from within the political boundaries of the Republic of South Africa. So this is clearly a center of mammalian endemism. And the mechanism that probably has, has been driving this over evolutionary time is that as uh, global climate waxes and wanes, as the ice ages come and go, during the cooler, drier periods, uh, it's thought that a grassland savanna belt probably extended from the Ethiopian highlands down to um, the Kalahari Desert and allowed an avenue by which these open country forms, like the ones that you're looking at here, were able to, um, to migrate between geographic regions in Africa. But then during warmer, wetter intervals, uh, forest belts begin to break up that savanna belt. Um, and in fact, the Ituri forest here probably forms a continuous forest with the lowlands of Mozambique, and that isolates smaller populations of these open country forms in South Africa where they diverge. Uh, if that's the case, then perhaps Australopithecus afarensis up here was sort of the pan-African, wider distributed version of an Australopith, and Australopithecus africanus down here was the southern Africa endemic form of an Australopith, and likewise, maybe Australopithecus sediba and now Homo naledi are just South African endemics that have got very little to do with the origins of the genus Homo and the bigger picture of human evolution. Um, Jonathan Kingdon, in his book Island Africa, talked about this when he said that uh, these centers of endemism, because unique species crop up there, we tend to think of them as evolutionary scrapyards as places where species originate and then die without issue. So my goal today is to convince you that Southern Africa is not an evolutionary scrapyard, that it in fact is important to the bigger picture of um, biodiversity on the African continent, and also to say that maybe from a Southern African perspective, it might give us a little bit of perspective on where Homo erectus comes from. Um, so I'm going to begin by talking about these three antelopes, this is the blue wildebeest up here, uh, the eland down here, and the impala here. Based on morphological evidence in the case of the impala and molecular evidence for these two antelopes, it's been argued that in relatively recent evolutionary history, within about the last 200,000 years, um, their East African forms probably experienced extirpation. They uh, went locally extinct in East Africa, and there was a repopulation event from a South African refugium. So these give us three examples of recent African mammals which have spread from Southern Africa back into uh, East Africa and into a broader range in Africa. And the wildebeest in particular is a member of a tribe called the Alcelophenes. 
And um, the fossil evidence suggests that the alcelophenes are themselves a South African endemic, uh, which originated about 7 million years ago, and which now has a distribution over much of Africa. Uh, the quaha is also another really interesting example. In the early days, uh, well, for most of the time that we've known about the quaha, it was put into its own species, Equus quaha, and considered to be a different species from the plain zebra, Equus burchelli. Um, plains uh, zebras are distributed from um, southern to northern Africa as a series of subspecies from um, Birchall zebra down here in the south all the way up to the mainless zebra up here in the northern part of, of Africa. But um, DNA work done on um, museum-preserved skins of the quaha have strongly suggested that it is, in fact, just a subspecies of the plain zebra. Um, so here we've got a southern African endemic, and one which, at least in terms of its pelage, is quite distinct from um, other zebras, which... Um, uh, is at least part of, of uh, gene flow across the African continent. And then, of course, there's baboons. Cliff Jolly has long argued that baboons make sort of a good model for understanding human evolution. And um, both molecular and fossil data suggest that uh, modern baboons of the genus Papio originated in southern Africa, probably some, like something from Papio and get, uh, excuse me, Angusticeps or Papio Izadi or something like that. And they expanded up the, the Savannah Corridor um, and expanded into the Ethiopian highlands and across the north of the Aturi Forest all the way to West Africa. And then later, as the climate got warmer and wetter, that those forest belts broke up, these groups became isolated, and they, they diverged into the, the five species of Papio that we recognize today. Not everybody recognizes them as species, and I'll come back to that in a minute. So here's another example of a possible South African endemic, which uh, is now found with a widespread distribution across southern Africa. But what about the diversity that we see in the early Homo fossil record? The, the diversity is important because we've got to figure out what it means. Does that mean that we're looking at different species? And in fact, this specimen right here is kind of very important to the argument. This is a maxilla, uh, which dates to about 1.44 million years old and is morphologically very similar to specimens which have been put into Homo habilis. And there are some people who have suggested, because we're finding this morphological diversity early in time, like at 1.9 million and closer to 1.4 million, that these groups remained morphologically distinct for long periods of time, for a half a million years. And that suggests to some people that they were good biological species, that they were not exchanging genes um, uh, across species boundaries. And that has big implications for uh, the nature of competition and the nature of the evolution of adaptive traits in early Homo. Well, again, if we go back to some of these um, Southern African endemics, I think they give us a little bit of a perspective on this. So uh, if we, again, look at the quaha, what's interesting is that uh, in a study done by uh, Richard Klein and Kathy Cruz Uribe back in 1999, they showed that the skulls of uh, the quaha is as distinct from the skull of the plain zebra. And remember, these two are considered now to be uh, subspecies of the same species as the plain zebra is from the Cape Mountain zebra. We know from genetic evidence that the Cape Mountain zebra and the plain zebra probably diverge from one another 
close to three million years ago. So this is a case where, despite being um, connected by gene flow, these two morphological groups uh, have remained distinct, probably helped out uh, a bit by isolation by distance, a bit by um, some patterns of, uh, or some uh, repeated periods of allopatry where they got separated into um, uh, geographically distinct populations. But a single species which is remaining morphologically distinct over a period of time. And again, if we go back to the baboons, they present a really interesting case. Uh, some work that was done on um, mitochondrial variation in the, the five baboon species found that uh, the mitochondrial genomes sorted into um, haplogroups, but that there was not good phylogeographic structure to the haplogroups, um, that they were a bit of a mess and that you got you know, some yellow baboons mixed in with olive baboons and uh, these um, Anubis baboons in the middle of these olive baboons, et cetera, et cetera. And um, the geneticists, and there have been a number of, of studies, both on, both on nuclear DNA and on mitochondrial DNA, which comes to the same conclusion, um, baboon genetics are a mess because they appear to have a history of hybridization and introgression of genes passing between species boundaries. And a lot of people would prefer to put these five baboons into a single species because they do, in fact, interbreed quite freely where they meet at hybrid zones. Uh, other people prefer to consider them as superspecies with five distinct groups. So this looks like an, a, a good example of a reticulate species of some organisms which dispersed across geographic space, became more or less isolated, diverged in their morphology, um, their pelage, their behavior, etc., and then came back together before that reproductive isolation was complete. We know on average for large-bodied mammals, excluding some kind of accident like uh, the sialic acid that Pascal was talking about, we know that it, on average it takes about 5 million years for large-bodied mammalian species to really become reproductively isolated from one another. So, um, but what's great about these baboons, oh, before I say what's great about them, there's a second thing that's great about them, and that is um, the olive baboon. I think he's the coolest baboon going because the genetic evidence suggests that, first off, the olive baboons originated as a hybrid species in the contact zone between the Hamadryas baboons up here and the yellow baboons here, and that they uh, were sort of almost like a super baboon. They were adaptively um, uh, very competent, and their range expanded across the northern part of Africa, and they probably um, swallowed up smaller pockets of baboons across that range. And they, they basically, through interbreeding with them, were able to capture some of the genetic variation and possibly adaptive traits from those local populations of the baboons. Um, so that's really cool. But the other thing is that we're looking at here at a species which over two million years has had a, a history of maybe diverging for a while and then coming back together and exchanging genes. Um, yet their cranial morphology remains diagnosable. Uh, to somebody like Stephen Frost, he can tell you if you give him an isolated um, uh, baboon skull whether he's looking at an olive baboon or a chakma baboon or yellow or anubis. And so my point here is that the morphological diversity that we see in the early Homo record, I do not think we can take that as evidence of reproductive isolation. Um, it's interesting, and it's interesting that it's persisting for a long time, 
but I don't think that we can take it as evidence of reproductive isolation. This is uh, some work that was done by Maislin and colleagues, published a couple years ago, and um, they were pointing out that in East Africa you, you have these um, events which are dri- driven by global climatic events where the lakes in the uh, African Rift Valley filled up and got very deep, and they're indicated by these blue bars here, which are passing across. And they noted that um, after one of these events, we often pick up um, more diversity in the hominin fossil record. And so these are hominin species over here on the, um, the right-hand side. And this suggests to me that early hominins were probably relatively stenotopic, meaning they had narrow habitat preferences. They were likely uh, savanna-adapted, and when savanna belts broke up during wetter conditions, when these lakes were filling up, they became relatively isolated. And then after those events, we pick up new species because we're recognizing new diversity in the fossil record. Um, but I don't think Homo erectus is stenotopic. I mean, Homo erectus, we pick them up in the Republic of Georgia, um, and very quickly after that, they're expanding into um, the far reaches of Asia and that kind of thing. And it makes me wonder if Homo erectus is, is sort of analogous to the olive baboon, like a super hominid. It originates out of one of these groups, and maybe just because it struck on some sort of um, adaptive strategy, which gave it a wider habitat tolerance, it spread more, and it encountered other groups and interbred with them, and maybe absorbed some of the adaptive features. And if this is the case, then these, these groups out here, which we consider separate species, and I, I still prefer to do that, although, again, I argue it doesn't mean that they're reproductively isolated, um, this is why we might be seeing a pattern where they all share different features with Homo erectus, um, and we may not, in fact, ever be able to identify a single ancestor of Homo erectus. And I think the challenge before us is to begin to imagine new models How do we deal with reticulate species? Um, Dan Lieberman has even talked about how we don't really even have any methods for recognizing hybridization, even in F1 generations, in the the direct hybrids. Um, And so I think this is the challenge for us, is is to sort of figure out um, how we might be able to um, develop and test these models. Thank you very much. So I'm going, to, I'm going to change gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about uh, behavior and uh, selective forces uh, acting on sort of larger behavioral packages. But I have to say I do so with a certain degree of anxiety um, because, uh, thanks to Photoshop, because uh, there's two reasons really why, why this talk has given me enormous um, um, attack of the nerves. One is that um, I... Um, as you've already learned, this is a really confusing topic, and anybody who ventures to say they understand how the, the, our, our genus arose uh, is probably self-delusional. But the other uh, problem is that um, I actually started my, um, my career actually getting interested in, in, in studying the origins of Homo, and so I have some kind of psychological issues that I have to work out. And so I hope you'll uh, forgive me if I start off uh, the, uh, this lecture a little bit autobiographical, 
and I'll tell you a little bit how I got interested in this crazy problem, which is that uh, when I was a freshman in college, um, I actually started working on, um, on this fossil to try to estimate its cranial capacity. And I thought that was really cool, and we published a paper, and wow, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And then because of that, uh, for my senior honors thesis, uh, we did the first probabilistic study to ask if Homo habilis and this thing, uh, Rudolf Ensis, were, were different, and that was really fun. And then, of course, the next question, which was really the subject of my master's thesis, was to see if we could figure out the evolutionary relationships, relationships among these things. And my conclusion was there's so much convergence, uh, what we call homoplasy, that it was a completely impossible task. And so I gave up on all this sort of stuff and got, <laughs> and got involved in, in working on other things like the fossil record and doing bi um, biomechanics and stuff like that. But all along, I've been really interested in the origins of homo. And one problem that continually puzzled me is that, is that basically I'm a splitter, right? I, I, if I can split species, I generally prefer to do that rather than being a lumper. But I'm convinced that uh, the species Homo erectus really is a bona fide species and it's lasted a long time and has had an enormous range of variation. It's actually more or less doubled its brain size over the course of about two million years. And seems to be sort of this gradual increase in brain size, regardless of what the errors might be for some of those, for some of those points. And furthermore, as uh, we're going to learn a little bit later on, there's also an enormous amount of, of variation, not just in brain size, but also in body size in the species. And uh, as you'll learn from uh, Leslie Ayala, who we'll be talking later on, and also from Herman Panzer, who will be talking later on, uh, there's an interesting energetic issue here, because bigger brains and bigger bodies, and there are probably other shifts going on, like in life history, uh, require extra energy. And these are some estimates that uh, Leslie Ayala and Kathy Key published a bunch of years ago. It's one of my favorite papers. And they more or less estimated that Australopithecus, a female like Lucy, she would have needed about 1,200 calories a day um, more if she were lactating, whereas a female Homo erectus would need a good 50% more calories per day. And again, that amounts to quite a number of calories that are required um, if they are lactating. So, and at the same time, more energy is needed. You also see that Homo erectus has smaller teeth. So this is tooth size of Homo erectus compared to Homo habilis and Australopithecus. And, and at the same time, also, uh, these are estimates of bite force from a paper we published a few years ago, showing that the genus Homo is able to produce much lower bite forces than, than those of Australopithecus. So therefore, if they're getting more energy, it's not from eating more food, it's eating from higher quality food. So this raises two interesting questions. So one is, how did early Homo, and I'm going to focus primarily on Homo erectus because I don't really know how to make sense of the earlier stuff. Um, how did it get more energy? And secondly, what was the effect of more energy on early homo, homo erectus evolution? And again, I'm going to focus on homo erectus. And so there are a lot of hypotheses out there. People have been thinking about this for a long time. One idea is that it has to do with food processing, better efficiency at long-distance locomotion. You might call that trekking. I've been, of course, very uh, in, obsessed with the idea of, of running and its importance in hunting, and I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, origins of meat-eating, food-sharing, extractive foraging, the list goes on. And to me, when you actually look at all these tasks and put them together, what they suggest is that actually what we're looking at is the origins of a way of life uh, that still exists, just barely, uh, called hunting and gathering. And to me, hunting and gathering is really an integrated system. There's no one component to it. It's not just hunting and gathering, although those are those both important. So you have uh, meat is an important component of the hunting and gathering diet, either through hunting and scavenging. There's also foraging, but importantly, it's often extractive. So you're, you're actually digging things up rather than just plucking them off trees or, or collecting honey or whatever, things that take more effort. Um, but you can't make the system work without also... Um, 
without tools and food processing, and I'll talk about that in a second. And furthermore, the system also requires um, intense uh, cooperation in various ways, uh, division of labor, food sharing, and so on. So I would like to suggest that um, actually much of what we uh, think about in terms of the origins of Homo have to, has to do with um, this hunting and gathering system, and that, um, and that you can think about it as a, as, a, as a trend, not as a moment in time when, voila, the world's changed, um, and as a trend, a selective trend that that's, has a lot to do with energy, and that you have selection for two major kinds of skills. First of all, there are the cognitive social skills, the skills that require increased intelligence or brains. That's very important for being a hunter-gatherer. But there are also athletic skills. Hunter-gatherers are athletes. They actually have to go out and do work every day and use their bodies in complex ways. And a lot of the athletic activities that hunter-gatherers do involve endurance athleticism rather than power or speed athleticism. And those, in turn, led to increased energy availability, which then permitted selection. You might say it released selection, released constraints on selection for bigger brains, et cetera, that drove the system forward. Here's a more formal version of the model. So you have selection for better hunting and gathering abilities, a combination of brains and brawn, not just brains over brawn. This leads to increased available energy, and of course, that's going to be especially important for mothers. You can only do so much with energy. You can either increase, you can increase the use of energy in reproduction, or you can increase it in, in maintenance and growth or somatic investment. And that will lead to not only maybe population growth, but also energy that can grow bigger brains, grow bigger bodies, have longer life histories. And that indeed leads to selection for athletic, you know, better athletic capabilities and better cognitive capabilities, which then keep the system going forward. And so that you have what I would call a sort of classic feedback model. Now, in only 18 minutes, I don't have the opportunity to go into great detail, so I'm going to focus on just a few uh, aspects of this, of this model, and I'm going to focus in particular on hunting and scavenging, and then briefly talk a little bit about food processing. So I've been interested for many years about the problem of how it is that early hominins hunted and scavenged. So here we have Usain Bolt mythically racing a cheetah. It would be no contest, because Usain Bolt is the fastest guy on the planet, but he can run about 10 meters a second, can do so for about 10 or 20 seconds. Pretty much any quadruped out there on the savanna can run twice as fast as Bolt and can do so for about four or five minutes. So he would have no chance uh, being either prey or, for that matter, escaping from any predator. In addition, hunting is difficult and chancy. Humans lack natural defenses, and also, until very recently, we lacked any kind of technology. This is the oldest known stone point. It's controversially dated to 500,000 years ago from southern Africa, and actually, really, uh, stone points really don't appear commonly in the archaeological record until about 300,000 years ago. So that means early homo, if it was hunting and scavenging, did so basically with just a sharpened wooden stick or some rocks to throw. And then finally, if you're going to become a carnivore, you also have to deal with other carnivores. And that's a very dangerous guild to deal with. Um, um, I wouldn't like to do that. I, certainly, when these things happen, I stay in the Jeep. I don't get out of it. So uh, we've, Dennis Bramble and I at the University of Utah, uh, based on earlier work done by Dave Carrier, have argued that one important factor that helped uh, early hominins uh, become hunters, after all, it's kind of a weird thing to think about bipedal primates becoming hunters, uh, is our incredible ability to run long distances at relatively fast speeds, endurance running. And I don't have time uh, now to go through this list of wonderful features that we all have in our bodies, literally, from our heads to our toes, but we have uh, a wide range of adaptive features, uh, features that improve our performance and our ability to run long distances. Even if you don't run long distances, uh, you have the ability to do it. In fact, you're right now sitting on one of those features, your gluteus maximus, 
uh, it's especially enlarged in humans, and, and we think uh, uh, there's good evidence that it's an adaptation for, for long-distance running. And uh, some of these features, of course, we can see in the fossil record. Some of them we can't see, uh, of course, because we, they don't preserve. We also have uh, some of these features, um, and the features I've listed, with the exception of long legs, I believe can really only make sense in terms of um, their, their ability to improve in performance in, in running, uh, not walking. So these are not just uh, consequences of walking a lot. These are, these are features for running. And, it, and also intriguingly, and again, I don't have the time to do this today, a lot of these features, not all of them, uh, first appear in the genus Homo. Some of them appear in Australopiths, that's for sure. Some of them we can't see in early Homo, although we have some guesses about them from footprints that are dated to the same uh, time period. But for the most part, if you look at the package of features that make human beings able to run marathons or other sort of long-distance events, they, they more or less appear uh, in the genus Homo, and I think that we can say that with some degree of confidence. So how would these have been ad adaptive? So one hypothesis is that may have been important for the very earliest meat-eating is that we started off, or our ancestors started off, scavenging. And this is called power scavenging, where you detect a scavenging opportunity, and one way to do it would be to, to observe vultures in the distance, and in fact there's some really neat data from South Africa showing that actually vultures do this to do this. So they, vultures follow other vultures, so why couldn't hominins do this too? And if you do this in the middle of the day when we can run better than other animals, um, you would, um, uh, particularly other, other carnivores, you might have an opportunity to get to these carcasses before, say, the hyenas or other, other competitors could have gotten there, and so that might have been uh, an advantage. We think that the, um, the really more important process that, that maybe happened later, because we have evidence that, uh, that running, uh, that, that hominins are, are hunting, they're actually hunting large adult prime males by at least two million years ago, is a mode of, of hunting that still exists, it's kind of rare, called persistence hunting. And it's, uh, it's been documented all around the world, in Africa, in the New World, in Asia, in Europe, etc. But of course, it's, bec uh, it's become less common today, because we have not only supermarkets, but also bow and arrow, and dogs, and nets, and things like that. But here's how persistence hunting works. The first thing, so I've graphed here on the x-axis speed in meters per second, and in blue here I've got the, the endurance running range for human beings, and here's our sprinting range. <clears throat> and here in the, I've got the trot range for, for various quadrupeds. So, um, so humans can run uh, marathons, for example, well above the trot gallop transition speed of, of dogs of the same size as humans, well above ponies, and actually good human runners can run above the trot gallop transition speed of horses. So, this is, so we can run long distances at speeds that make quadrupeds gallop. And importantly, when we run, we cool primarily by sweating, such as this woman at the Westminster Dog Show, but when... <laughs> Um, where her dog and this zebra, for example, that's being chased or, uh, by, a, by a film crew, obviously, um, can't sweat. They don't sweat, but they cool down by panting, short, shallow breaths. And the cool thing is that when animals gallop, they cease to be able to pant. That's basically because their, their guts slam into their, into their diaphragm with each stride, um, and so that, that's, a, that's a serious constraint. So if you go for, on a hot day, don't take your dog for a really long run and force it to gallop, you'll, you'll kill your dog. Uh, so that enables us to do something called persistence hunting again. As I said, uh, it happens uh, in the heat. So people typically do it in the middle of the day when it's really hot. They'll pick really big animals. The bigger the animal, uh, the better, because big things overheat faster than small things. And they'll chase that animal, force that animal to gallop. Of course, the animal will gallop faster than the human can run. The animal will hide in the bushes, but then the human chases it, uh, tracks it, usually at a walk, finds it again, and then chases it again. And so there's this kind of dance. In fact, it's called in South Africa by the Bushmen sometimes the Great Dance, in which they go from 
They chase versus track, run versus walk, and over the course of about 15 to 30 kilometers, again, only about half of that spent running, they can drive animals such as this kudu into a state of hyperthermia where the animal's going to die anyway. And according to the, 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 few, the, 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 um, the number of uh, hunts that have been followed by Louis Liebenberg down in South Africa, about 75% of the hunts that he's uh, followed, these persistence hunts, were actually successful, which is a remarkable level for hunting. Now, of course, hunting is not all about running. Um, there are many other adaptations which I think are very important. For example, we've done work in my lab on throwing. Obviously, you need to, to walk long distances in order to run. You have to carry food back. Um, you have to carry weapons um, or, 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 foods, or things to defend you. Um, the ability to lose heat is very important. And I would also argue there are important cognitive uh, adaptations which are important for, 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 for hunting. For example, you have to be able to track an animal, which is not a trivial task. You have to have really good spatial memory and mapping. You have to have a good theory of mind. Uh, there's this wonderful book by Louis Liebenberg, um, uh, actually, in which he, he goes through the various kinds of cognitive tasks that are necessary to do this kind of hunting. You have to be a, a really good naturalist with knowledge of the ecology. You have to have sharing and division of labor and communication, etc. So, so I'm not arguing that, that hunting is, is just the, is the, is the, whole, is the sole deal here. And furthermore, I would also not uh, make the argument that these, these are features that only were a, a beneficial for hunting. Obviously, some of these, uh, these features would have been important for, for example, getting honey, for digging underground storage organs, and so on. So there's a lot going on. I've just been focusing on hunting. I don't want to over, overstate my case here. But I would also argue that, again, there's more, right? Um, um, again, there's a lot of systems here to talk about, and I just want to talk about one more of them today, because, again, we don't have time to do everything, um, and talk about the importance of, I would say, is food processing. So let's imagine you're a, a hunter, and you've come back from a, from a long day's hunt, and it's maybe one of those 25% of the time, or maybe even more, who knows, uh, that you came back empty-handed. So you've been gone for you know, much of the day chasing some kudu, and damn, you didn't get it. You didn't get a lot of food. You come back, and you're, you're hungry, and you need food, right? You, need to, you, need to, you don't want to go into negative energy balance. Now, unfortunately, I would say two million years ago, uh, cooking hasn't yet been invented. Um, in addition, uh, if you try to eat the, uh, the normal kinds of foods that foragers eat, um, you're going to have to spend a lot of time doing it. Um, food processing, uh, chimpanzees spend about half their day eating. They fill their bellies, wait for their bellies to empty, fill their bellies again, wait for their bellies to empty, do that. Basically, that's what they do all day long. Uh, you can't afford to spend all night long eating, waiting for your belly to empty, to fill it up again, um, to go in the next day. And then finally, if I were to give you raw meat to chew, which, of course, doesn't require that much um, um, time to, to, uh, to chew, you'd, you'd actually have a pretty horrible time doing it. You should, by the way, check out this video. Uh, this is a, a piece of goat that we gave to somebody in our lab, and after uh, raw goat, I should say, and after uh, 40 chews, you can see these are the other particles. We had the person spit it out, and you can see that after 40 chews, this person was unable to actually reduce this particle any smaller. In fact, and you can also try this experiment at home um, if you'd like to. The point is that human, human teeth are dreadfully um, uh, designed or adapted for chewing raw meat. But there's a simple solution. All you need to do is uh, the sort of simple processing that was invented back in the old one that might have been, you know, started around 3.3 million years ago. You can cut your meat, which we, of course people still do today, and you can also pound in, um, your, your underground storage organs and break them into smaller pieces. So again, I would argue that this suggests there's some kind of feedback loop going on in, in, in the genus Homo, right? You've got selection for better hunting-gathering abilities. That's not just brains, but also brawn. And I would argue that many of these athletic capabilities have to do with endurance, um, but not all of them. Power is important sometimes. And that we have, again, this feedback loop, giving us more energy, allowing more reproductive 
of uh, more investment, not only in reproduction, but in, in, in bodies, which then improve capa capabilities that provide extra energy, which drive this loop forward. I would, and of course, for a theory to be useful, it has to have some predictive power. And I would say that it, it helps us explain several trends that we see in the genus Homo. So one, for example, is the dispersal of humans out of Africa. If you do some basic models, I'm not going to go through the math now. If you have early Homo increasing its population size by 0.4% per year, which is about average for many hunter-gatherers today, and you keep group size uh, and population density about the same as, as hunter-gatherers, you can actually account for the dispersal of hominins from Nairobi all the way to uh, Tbilisi in between 50 and 100,000 years. Secondly, I would argue that all this increased energy might have been just what was necessary for that increase in brain size and also body size that we've observed and already discussed about in, in the genus Homo. It also, I think, explains an interesting specimen, Homo floresiensis, because we've talked about uh, increased energy driving this positive feedback loop in, in, in Homo. Well, what happens to those poor descendants of maybe Homo erectus that ended up on the island of Flores, then they're stuck there and there's not much food. And, and it seems that their selection drove them in reverse. So they went down to smaller bodies and their brain sizes shrunk even more, presumably uh, as adaptations to save energy. And then finally, I think also it helps us explain why we have such a hard time not only talking about the origins of the genus Homo, but also its next transition to archaic Homo. Another maybe not so well-kept secret is we have a hard time defining Homo heidelbergensis just as much as we have defining Homo habilis or Homo erectus. And uh, this is an analysis I did a few years ago, but if you take uh, this fossil, which is an early Homo erectus, and blow it up to this fossil and actually look at the differences in, in size and shape, uh, actually you hold size constant, Basically, uh, Homo heidelbergensis, this archaic Homo, is, is a version of Homo erectus that has essentially a bigger brain, you can see that from these arrows, and a, and a relatively larger face, which I would argue scales with having a bigger body. So basically, I would argue that Homo archaic Homo is a, is a Homo erectus that's basically had its brain blown up and its face and body blown up, and that's more or less what you get. And there's plenty of evidence now that it's maybe then an archaic Homo, and I, and I hope Leziella will agree with me, that it's really in archaic Homo that we see this slowdown in life history, um, this extended period of childhood, because early Homo erectus doesn't have that. And I would, I would venture to guess, though we don't have any evidence, that if you found an archaic Homo, it would have lots of body fat like most of us today, and, but not like chimpanzees. Uh, I don't mean excess body fat. I mean hum the thin humans are still fat compared to most primates. So in short, hunting and gathering, I would argue, favored selection for both brains and brawn, and in particular, I would say endurance athleticism, and that more brains and more brawn led to increased energy availability, which released constraints on selection for yet more brains and brawn and drove an interesting feedback loop. And the, and the ramifications of this are particularly interesting in a world today where we get all the energy we want uh, from the supermarket and no longer have to uh, do any endurance athleticism in order to get it, but that's obviously another lecture. Thank you. Life takes energy, and nowhere is that more keenly felt than in a population like the Hadza, who I'll talk about today. The Hadza are hunter-gatherers who live in northern uh, Tanzania, and they're about 12 hours ahead. So right around now, they're starting to stir, maybe thinking about waking up, and by the time we're all sitting around over cocktails talking about all the great talks, they'll be waking up and figuring out how it is they're going to feed themselves that day. And every day they're out hunting and gathering and getting honey and all these other foods that they know how to get from their landscape. But it's a it's, it's a it's serious matter because all of life's processes 
Um, all the obvious ones like walking and running, but all the unobvious ones like immune function, nervous system function, growth, reproduction, uh, somatic maintenance so we can live a long time. Um, all those things take energy. And so we, we as any organism does, uh, are forced to figure out how to, how to fuel all of our daily activities and daily functions. Now, uh, Darwin's great insight was that life is a game of turning energy into kids. Uh, the point of life is to reproduce. It's one of society's great ironies that that has been picked up as a political platform by people who don't like Darwin very much. Uh, but that's another, that's another topic. Um, but be, because of the sort of centrality of energy and energy expenditure to biology and evolution, uh, when I look at the origin of Homo or put humans in a broader context across our, our larger um, evolutionary family of the other apes, um, what I see, as someone who studies energy expenditure and physiology from an evolutionary perspective, I see a story of energy expenditure and, and energy uh, metabolic strategies changing. Um, so one of the big obvious ones, if we look through the fossil record and we can track some of these changes, one of the first things we would notice is that right around 2 million years ago is when we start to see a big increase in brain size. It's been talked about already. Our brains are so big at this point that they consume about a quarter of our energy while we're sitting there resting. So every fourth breath you take is just the oxygen to fuel your brain as you're listening to me talk. Other things show up too, and so we see a change in diet. So it's a change in the way that we're getting energy. Uh, bigger bodies, perhaps. I published a paper in 2012 that reviewed data on body size and suggested that body size does get bigger. So that's my scarlet letter, even though, as Carl pointed out, people have suggested maybe they don't get bigger right away. Oh, well. Anyway. Uh, the point, yeah, the point about science is to be wrong, I guess. Um, we know they're getting more active. They're ranging further. Dan Lieberman talked a lot about this, uh, this endurance athlete um, phenotype that evolves with early homo uh, and is obviously going to be costly. Um, as Leslie just talked about, we have life history changes that happen at least piecemeal and, and perhaps as long ago as 2 million. Maybe some of them don't happen until later, but that's a big energy expenditure change. Um, humans are the, are the bunny rabbits of the ape world. We reproduce really quickly. So that was, whenever that happened, that's an expensive change. And of course, things like fire and cooking also change, uh, as Richard Rangel has pointed out, the way that we get energy and the way that we use it. And so all of the things that we think about as being sort of the human adaptive suite, the thing that separates us from other animals, these big ticket items here, all come around with the origin of the genus Homo in the last two million years, and they almost all, in fact, all of these issues, um, including some of the others mentioned today, they all revolve around or touch on energy expenditure and the way that our bodies sort of budget and spend and allocate the calories that we use every day. So that's all well and good, but when you start kind of doing the math on the back of the envelope, you find out that this adaptive suite that we've got uh, causes a real accounting problem, okay? In mammalogy, when we look across species, we generally see uh, that if a species has a really big brain, then it has a smaller gut, or if it has a really expensive, um, if it reproduces at really high rates, it has a shorter lifespan. And that's because, in general, across mammals, uh, you can't get something without giving something else up. Trade-offs are the norm um, in all of biology and, and in mammology especially. But when we compare humans to the other apes, 
what we see are not trade-offs. We see that we are having, again and again, in terms of brain size, day range, how far you live every day, how, much, how long we live, how uh, many and, and how big our kids are. Uh, we see again and again that we have exceeded the other apes in all these really costly traits. So the human adaptive suite is really expensive. And it isn't clear at all how it is that we can afford to, to have evolved it. And if we can't explain the how, then we're going to have a very hard time explaining the why. Um, so with that in mind, um, and knowing, as Dan pointed out, that all of these traits evolve in the context of hunting and gathering, uh, my colleagues Dave, Dave Reichlin and Brian Wood and I uh, decided to see if we could make some headway on this by measuring daily energy expenditures in hunter-gatherers, those hods of hunter-gatherers that I mentioned before. The idea there was we have these really expensive things happening. Uh, they're important in understanding our evolution. And we thought, as all of you, I, I would bet, I would wager, think, um, that lifestyle, eco ecological context is really, really important for how many calories we spend. If we have a really active lifestyle, we expect to do burn more calories. And so we wanted to know how many calories are spent every day by hods of hunter-gatherers who still have that hunting and gathering lifestyle in which these things evolved. Would we make any headway by looking to, to see if we could make sense of the accounting, the caloric accounting, by measuring energy expenditure there? And that's where things got weird. So how do we fuel this? Well, just because not everyone here is going to be very familiar with the Hadza, um, again, they're a traditional hunting, hunting and gathering uh, population. Um, they're sort of textbook. In fact, they are the hunter-gatherers in your textbooks. Uh, <laughs> men hunt, women gather, men also collect honey. Uh, they live without domesticated crops, without domesticated animals and machines. Women work very hard every day. Uh, walk six kilometers a day, often with a kid on their back, and when they're not walking, they're working. So it's a physically demanding lifestyle for women and for men as well. Men are out walking often 12, 15 kilometers. It isn't uncommon for them to go 30 kilometers in a day uh, to track down game. And they also climb trees to get honey. It's, it's a physically hard, hard lifestyle. And again, the whole reason that we spent three years getting funding and permits and going to do it was that we knew that these guys would be burning calories like crazy and we wanted to understand just how much that costs so that we could get a sense of what hunting and gathering lifestyles looked like in terms of calorie expenditure. Um, and so what we did was we went and lived with the hunter-gatherers, the uh, hunter-gatherers for a couple of months. Um, again, Dave Reichlin and Brian Wood, I want to make sure I acknowledge, without those guys, we wouldn't have been able to do this, especially Brian, who's been working with the Hadza for, for years. Um, and we measured daily energy expenditure with a method that you might not have heard of, it's called the doubly labeled water method. And what it does is rather than estimating your energy expenditure based on your activity, it measures your energy expenditure uh, by tracking isotope flow through your body. We, you drink some isotopes, and then we watch those flush out over the course of a couple weeks. And we, it actually lets us track how much carbon dioxide your body makes. And that gives us a very precise physiological measure um, of how, much, how many calories you're burning. Totally safe and non-invasive. We do this in Western contexts all the time. Uh, but it's a really, it, it, it is the way to measure calorie expenditure in sort of daily normal life. And here's what we found. So here is uh, fat-free mass, lean mass, uh, against daily energy expenditure, calories per day. And there we have your U.S. and European adults 
open symbols are women, are women and closed are men. So this is, just, this is us. This is this room of people. Okay? And bigger people burn some more calories than smaller people. That's what that trend is telling you. And again, we knew when we looked at the Hadza, what we'd see is they had jumped off of this cloud really high and had hugely expen expensive daily lifestyles. And we didn't find that at all. These are the most surprising negative results I think I've ever gotten. <laughs> um, it was really strange. And we didn't have a great explanation for how, but we knew the data were sound. And so that got me thinking about origins of HOMO, the way we think about energy expenditure evolving. What's going on here? The old models don't work. We need to think about what does. So there's no difference between energy expenditure and Hadza and Western lifestyles. Um, along with this, I started doing a series of energy expenditure measurements, same technique, across a big range of uh, primates, including a lot of apes, a lot of other species. And here's what those data look like. Here's body mass versus daily energy expenditure. The primates are on that red line. And you see they're shifted low compared to the non-primates. Now, this is a log-log graph. It doesn't go 1, 2, 3. It goes 1, 10, 100, 1,000. And on log-log space, you hide a lot of variation. What that grade shift means, even though it doesn't look like much, is that primates only burn half the calories that we'd expect for a mammal our size. In other words, evolution is pushing metabolic rates around wildly. Primates are just as active as other animals are, but they're burning half the calories. That's crazy, right? Our models for how we think about energy expenditure working are wrong. Even weirder, primates in captivity in the zoo uh, burn as many calories, exactly as many calories as, as primates in the wild, right? Your ideas about, and my ideas too for that matter, about energy, how energy expenditure works don't work. Why not? Well, it turns out that we've all been lied to. <laughs> um, okay, so just the take home here is that, again, we see big evolutionary changes in, in energy expenditure. Lifestyle seems to have no effect. Why? Well, here's why. Um, I'm going to show you data from a study where they took a bunch of people and trained them to run a marathon. They took people who do, were not active at all and trained them to run a marathon. And every couple of months, because they did this over the course of a year, as they're increasing how much they're running, that's the x-axis, they would check in and ask how many calories they're burning. And you would expect, as they go more and more and more and more running, right, that it would just go up, 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 up with energy expenditure. Instead, that's what happens. Okay? The gray line is the expectation. The black line's what really happens. We just published a study um, that is a snapshot across a big survey of people with different lifestyle activity levels, and we see the same thing cross-sectionally. That physical activity level doesn't have a huge effect on energy expenditure because the body is defending an energy expenditure of throughput in the same way, kind of, that you defend an, a body temperature, right? No matter if it's cold or hot outside, if you're working hard or not, your body wants to be at 98 degrees. Um, if you, no matter how much you've eaten or whatever, your body's trying to keep your blood glucose levels in the same place. This is, this is homeostasis. This is an, a trait that your body is trying to hold on to and defend. Well, that's really cool. What that means is that we can look at daily energy expenditures as an evolved trait. Okay? Now, on the flip side, it means that we can't fix the human energy paradox by just shoving more energy in, Right? It's not like the wood chipper in Fargo, right? You can't just keep on pushing things down. <laughs> There's a limit. There's a limit, right? This is the limit that gets defended. So, um, so models of human evolution that in, of, of HOMO that involve getting more energy from the environment and bringing them in, those are all well and good. We need that. We need more energy to come in. 
but that's not sufficient. We also need to evolve a metabolism that will be able to use it. We need to evolve a bigger wood chipper. So then the question becomes, if that's the human energy throughput, how does it compare to the other apes? Does this give us a way out of the human energy paradox? Perhaps we've cranked up the volume on our metabolism, and that allows us to fund and fuel big brains, big activity, fast reproduction, long lifestyles. So we can go back to this data, uh, and we can ask, relative to the trend line for primates there, where do humans fall out? Are humans high or low for, for primates for their body size? And um, unfortunately, I don't have the answer for this for you today. Uh, this is sort of a, a watch this space thing. Better question for this conference, though, is, okay, let's say it's true. When did this evolve? Because it can only solve the human adaptive suite problem if it happened early enough, right, that it can explain these things that show up early in the, genus, in the origins of the genus Homo. Uh, so here we go back then to, uh, well, sorry, let me, let me take for a second. The problem with evolving a higher metabolic rate, the problem with evolving a higher total energy expenditure is that you put yourself at risk of starvation, okay? This is why other animals, this is why not all animals are maxed out on how much energy they can put through a day. Right? If energy expenditure is constrained, you can't turn it up, but you also can't turn it down. Um, and so you're stuck with the same energy requirement all the time. And if you evolve a higher one that you can't fund, you're out of luck. You go extinct. Um, now, some interesting animals and lineages have figured out a way around this. We call it hibernation. Right? But primates, other than mouse lemurs, don't hibernate or go through torpor. So we're stuck paying the bills every day. So if you can't pay the bills, you can't evolve a higher metabolic rate. Uh, one way of keeping those bills paid, to force the metaphor even further, is by food sharing and also by being fat. Um, and humans do both of those exceptionally well. Humans are the only <laughs> ape that shares. Other apes don't share food. Um, in fact, we're one of the only mammals that share. And what does sharing do? Sharing means that if I come home empty-handed today, that's okay, because I can share food with you and you'll, you'll help me out. Sharing food means little kids that have huge energy demands but don't have the skill sets yet to feed themselves get fed by their parents and, and by people who even who aren't their parents. Um, so it's a, it's a bet hedging risk against um, evolving a high metabolic rate. Uh, humans are also the fattest primate by far. Um, we take it for granted that humans, you know, even athletic humans, have body fat percentages in the sort of 15% range. Uh, there was just a nice study published by Adrian Zillman and Deb Bolter showing that chimpanzees in zoos being lazy have body fat percentages of less than 5%. So there's something that happened in our evolution that makes complete sense when we put it in the context of evolving a higher metabolic rate if, if, we can, if those data come through. It also gives us something to look for in the fossil record, right? Because metabolisms don't fossilize. But behaviors can. So what can we find? Well, when we go back to this graph and we ask, is there evidence for sharing? When does that happen? Uh, the answer is we can all argue and fight. But probably you've got sharing happening as soon as you're eating animals that are too big to eat yourself. And that happens by at least... 1.8 million years ago. Here's a nice uh, cut mark on a large bobbid. 
uh, from the site of Demonisi, where Philip uh, gave us the, the lowdown on the five skulls there about 1.8 million years ago. There's other interesting tantalizing evidence about uh, adaptations to metabolic changes. Again, changing the diet changes the way you're getting your food. Leslie Aiello also published a seminal paper. The reason that we all talk about her papers has been so important. And this actually doesn't change the importance of that insight, which is that when you get uh, meat eating in the diet, you can get a smaller gut, and that frees up energy for big brains and that kind of thing. Uh, we may have also had some change in uh, energy expenditure and efficiency in walking and running, which would, again, save you some energy and make the energy paradox a little bit easier to figure out. Um, and, of course, fire. Of course, it comes along pretty late in the game, but cooking and having fire would have also changed our energy budget. And so what I hope I've sparked to, uh, in, as you're thinking about this issue of you know, origin of genus homo and human uniqueness is that in addition to these fossilized things that we can see very readily, what we have to do is, is cast a wider net and think about the physiological changes that are happening and include in there um, a big piece of this story that is metabolic change that allowed us to fuel this human adaptive suite. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.